To the Talking Space podcast. Before we start, I would like to write off say thank you to everybody for making this podcast an amazing success. Looking at the numbers, this podcast has gone larger and further around the world than any of us ever could have expected. So once again, thank you. Now to today's episode. Unfortunately, Gina Hurley, he was unable to join us today due to some personal issues. But instead, we have our regular two guys with us, Gene McCulka and Mark Ratterman. How are you doing, Gina Mark? I'm doing pretty good. So are yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. How about you, Mark? Another fine Sunday night, at least for uh, recording purposes. For recording purposes, <laughs> indeed. Anywhere in time on playback. This Anywhere in time on playback, that too, yes. And also joining us as a special member on our panel here tonight is on Twitter, known as Craftlass. Welcome. Thank you. So glad to have you with us, and hopefully later we'll be able to get to talk about something very interesting that you did. But we'll save that for a little bit. So now, on to today's first topic. And our first topic is, a short while ago, as you remember, there was the launch of these Ares 1X, which is supposed to be a test flight of the future generation of rockets that will take us back to the moon after the space shuttle program retires. That test flight, the data results have finally come back and some interesting results. So what do you guys think about the Ares 1X results? I think they're off to a good start. Um, I know when they launched and we talked about it then, you know, we had concerns pre-launch and post-launch. We were talking about, well, gee, how did this go? And Gene, I think your favorite word was the uh, buzzword through the uh, actual launch. It starts with a T. This was also called a test flight. The, uh, the whole objective was to get the thing to clear the tower, and it sure did that, and uh, to uh, go ahead and, and see what happens during staging and, and so on. If I read the, the, the PDF correctly, I don't think they had any incidences of any, any like real serious torquing uh, or any threat to the tower. I know there was some little damage to uh, the flame trench itself at launch, but uh, they didn't really experience the, the, uh, the torquing issue, did they? Not no, in fact, what I could tell. You know, it says at the beginning of it, this is a 30-day report based on initial assessment of preliminary data, and they got future reports out in late January and late February. So there'll be more information coming to us. But, you know, I love... You know, reading some of the summary, it says completely successful flyaway maneuver, minor damage at the lower levels of the uh, launch structure, ground equipment, you know, minor damage, guidance navigation, pre- preliminary liftoff drift analysis showed the vehicle performed as expected. Don't you love it? Yeah, they well, even have some yeah. graphs here of what they expected between uh, simulations and the actual launch, and it almost looks like they played connect the dots and traced each one of them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the things I know was a concern pre-launch as to whether uh, they would even get range safety to give them a a clearance to launch was the uh, thrust oscillation. And they said here that uh, 
Oh, the peak pressure was about one-third of the predicted value. There was a substantial margin between the recommended load and the actual load. I mean, it just looks like they they got to be happy with what they've got so far. And, of course, there were problems. But like you said, Gene, it was a test flight. Yeah, that's that's what everybody has to has to keep in mind when we're, we're looking at this. I mean, I don't want to sound like a, an Aries One X fanboy, but you know, shoot, the darn thing worked. It got off the it got off the ground. We've got some test data to look at and to make sure that we're going in the right direction. And uh, this should aid in uh, the design of the uh, the actual article. The only only little little nonconformity we still apparently have to look at is the uh, the parachutes. There was some, I believe there was a, a shoot issue, which unfortunately caused damage to the uh, to the first stage, the SRB there. And uh, uh, what was it? Some sort of, they were looking at some sort of pendulum effect? Yeah, the, it was a forward skirt dome that was supposed to separate that didn't. And because of that, it had a pendulum effect on the drogue chute. And that could have done a little pull off center, causing some of the parachutes that followed it to not exactly inflate correctly, including one of them actually inflating a little too early. Right, and I think that one was just utterly... I think, if I remember exactly looking at the film, that thing was just utterly ripped to shreds, so there really wasn't a, uh, a good, uh, you know, a good slowdown for the, for the, uh, the shoots there. But uh, again, this falls under the heading of a test flight. These are things that are to be expected, and uh, I'm sure they'll go ahead, take a look at what that occurred and go off and fix it perfectly exactly as expected there would be no reason to do tests exactly good point also one thing that we were also concerned about was we mentioned that in the nasa youtube video of the launch they stopped short right after separation because we thought uh once it separated the dummy load might have accidentally hit the srv part of the rocket and what we're all happy to hear is during the test flight there was actually no contact between either of them yeah, I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm looking at that the uh, the, the PDF that uh, NASA had uh, put out, and I think that's on page, what was it, page 17 of that. There was a yes, indeed. A, uh, I'm sorry. Yes, indeed, I said. Yes, um, on 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 page 17 there, where it actually showed uh, the computer simulation of what actually happened, and you know, again, it did not. You know, there was no contact made at all between the uh, the upper stage and and the lower stage. Right, and there's information about it exactly also on page 15, which, for those of you listening so you can follow along, there is a link in the information about this episode. It's labeled Aries 1X Report. Because on page 15 here, it says there was no recontact, and looking at it, every bit of separation was dead on, if not really close to nominal. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, uh, the Aries 1X folks have got a lot to be proud of on this one. The thing had never flown before. It had flown probably in simulation, but it would never flown in real life. And and uh, this, you know, just getting this this out of the way um, has got to be a real good shot in the arm, and um, really just just to make sure that we're going in the right direction with this. And by you know all indications, it looks like we are. So that's really really good to see. I'm sure, uh, Mark. I'm sure our, our mutual acquaintance. Uh, John Cowart's over there uh, with his uh, with this big old grin on his face, looking at some of those. Yeah, you sort of think about the launch as being the end of, of that phase, and really it's the beginning of a lot of analysis, just like we saw with Elcross, where it was 30 days out with Elcross that they told us, hey, there's water on the moon, and here we are with Ares 1X, where 
They have, uh, according to an article I read here in nasaspaceflight.com, it says they probably have terabytes of data. They had 711 sensors, and a few didn't make it, most did. Even mentions, despite the hard landing, most of the developmental flight instrumentation sensors gained required data from ASCENT, which would be priceless for the continued development of the vehicle. Sounds worthy of a well more than passing grade. Yeah, so far so good. And I guess the real, you know, more data is coming, as, as Sawyer, you mentioned. Uh, one is going to be coming a 60-day report uh, late uh, in January of next year, and then the final one in February of next year. And uh, we'll have to go ahead and revisit this during that period of time uh, to uh, to see what, uh, what the whole, uh, you know, to wrap this up in one big package and, and uh, uh, let folks know what's going on. Definitely looking forward to hearing what's going to happen in the future with that. Definitely. So we'll put this subject to rest just like we did with all of the haters of Ares 1X? Yeah, and we'll, we'll pick it up again in late January. <laughs> all right, looking forward to hearing some reactions we hear from that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we'll probably hear something from the direct folks and and all that. But uh, again, not uh, not a bad start. Not a bad start at all. Alrighty then, moving along to our next topic. There was a meeting that was held on December 2nd of 2009. It was a meeting with the United States Congress, and there were a couple of Congress people talking about the safety of human spaceflight. Unfortunately, that talk of safety in human spaceflight eventually became, as you would call it, Gene, a fanboy obsession with the Constellation program as a whole, and it got very off track. And some people basically said, what happened to the safety that we were supposed to talk about? And a couple of people aren't too happy. So what do we think about Congress getting a little off topic? Well, you know, being guilty of it ourselves sometimes. Um, the uh, I, I know that... Uh, U.S. Representative Dana Rohrabacher was not to, uh, 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 for those who don't know, uh, uh, Representative Rohrabacher is uh, from California. He basically said, quote, and um, I think we we did need a little bit more diversity on, on the panel when people like myself are, are probing and we have to have someone there that will keep everybody sort of honest. So with reference to uh, hearing uh, yeah, maybe we got to go ahead and make sure it just stays on topic. But by the same token, too, um, it's good to hear members of Congress uh, talking in a pro-constellation uh, uh, mode there, especially when most Congress critters these days are not really, you know, jumping on the bandwagon, so to speak. It's good to hear some some sort of support out there for for uh, for NASA and for uh, Project Constellation. Almost like what we talked about last week in terms of Save NASA, even along those lines, because we were talking there about how Congress was supporting NASA. And it's great to hear that they're not just supporting it by letter writing, but they're supporting it in this case as well. It would have been yeah. great, though, had they stuck on topic of human spaceflight safety. Yeah, I mean, they, they you know, with with respect, though, maybe, again, I'll, I'll reiterate, maybe it's, it's a good thing that, that some, some folks are actually kind of sort of thinking along the lines of... Uh, of supporting NASA and supporting what's what the future is going to be be like. Um, Mark, you had some interesting insight with reference to uh, General uh, uh, Tom Stafford's remarks. True. In fact, I was just looking at that. He made some statements. He had a written statement or a written testimony that uh, I'm sure can be searched and found. 
This, this got my attention. He said in his statement, the Augustine Committee report gave just brief mention of crew safety for launch, orbital, and recovery operations. Unfortunately, there were no in-depth discussions of the vital issue of safe launch to orbit and return to Earth to government crews. And I kind of generally think of the Augustine Committee as, as covering everything. And they tried to. And, you know, this is an area where I can see why Congress is interested. You know, they want safety addressed. But I've, I've got something I haven't mentioned before I thought of this evening. You, you think of, of test pilots and space flight as pushing the envelope. And I'm concerned that we could be so overly focused on safety that instead of pushing the envelope, we're going to pull it in and seal us into a vacuum of a smaller place than we've been. I feel exactly the same way. There's, there has to be an element of risk to this. There's, there's no way to make something this gigantic 100% infallible. There's no way. True. <laughs> there, and, you know, there's an inherent risk to anything where you're doing new things. Well, Thomas Stafford, he mentioned the need for safety, and he says that uh, in, in talking about, well, how do you write standards? You know, if it's, a, if it's a government flight, you know, we'll have our standards. Suppose it goes over into the hands of private industry. And, and he makes the statement there, too, that uh, it's private industry that, that drives the space program. It's the engineers, it's the workers, it's the technicians, the maintenance people that, that make flight happen. It's the flight controllers. You know, they're they're not government employees directly. They're contractors to the government. Yeah, the um, we're, we're talking a little bit about uh, about flight safety here, and um, I'm just kind of remembering what astronaut Steve Lindsay, who was then um, I believe in charge of the astronaut office, he's not he's, he's no longer. Uh, he he took himself out of there to uh, to be a commander of STS-133, the final the final uh, shuttle flight, but. Uh, he had a very interesting thing to say about uh, about flight safety with reference to all of this. He said something to the effect that he gave the odds as far as a shuttle flight is concerned. I think there was what it, the odds were like one in seventy four. That with, was what Mike Massimino said when we saw him. Right. Thank you. Thank thank you very much. The odds were like one in seventy four of uh, of a failure, and uh, I'm sure the astronaut office is looking at constellation and the designs for the crew escape system on the Orion with uh, with great interest because right now there really isn't a crew escape system on the shuttle it's just you know it's just a quirk of the design and um, I'm sure now that they have a, a capsule like design uh, they will go ahead and, and lobby very hard for a you know a viable crew escape system. I mean, these guys know that they're taking a risk every time they step inside that bird. We're in a very risky business, as uh, as the late Gus Grissom said. But you know, this endeavor is worth the risk, as he he himself put it. So um, I think we know we're we're not going to have you know a 100% safety record. I mean, shoot, we you know you and I can go outside, take a walk right now, and get you know slammed by a by a car or something i mean life itself is a risk and there but there are things that are worth taking risks for and uh you know pushing the limits of human endeavor is one of them just a quick question with that stat the one out of 74 chance is that of any failure or of a catastrophic failure with laws of crew that is one in 74 of a i'm i'm not too sure but i i, I would venture to guess it's uh 
uh, one in seventy four catastrophic failure. All right, because I know there've been many failures on almost every shuttle flight of some sort. Right, but that we're talking about uh, not coming back. Um, Steve Lindsay made the uh, comment that uh, you know, and and not to belittle the uh, the folks that go. Uh, fishing on the Bering Sea and all that, you know, the the series, the Discovery Channel series, uh, Deadliest Catch, and that supposedly is the, you know, he, he made the reference that that is, you know, considered to be one of the deadliest jobs in, in the United States, and his testimony, he said, well, we kind of sort of beg to differ, and he used the 1 in 74 stat on, on that, and, uh, you know, it, it's rather sobering, but... Uh, um, you want to reduce that one in seventy-four number the best you can, and uh, I mean the, these guys know that this is never going to be you know a thousand percent safe. It never will be, but we're going to try to minimize that those risks when possible. And I think that's what the I'm sure the astronaut office has got uh, some special interest in uh, one, in constellation. Go ahead. I'm sorry. One of the things uh, I noticed um, that really stood out during the hearing was. That, that it took three years for them to certify the Soyuz for um, American astronauts. And it had already been proven to be a pretty safe system. They've had so much success with it, they already had at that point. And it took them three years to certify it, and it, you know, because of safety. And so obviously they care greatly about astronaut safety. This is a top priority at all times. But uh, you're right, you're never going to be able to completely eliminate this risk. I agree completely. That's basically the chance you take when you strap into that shuttle or whatever the spacecraft may be that you strap into. The thing is, they tested out numerous times to try and prevent all of these accidents, but you can't ever get rid of everything. And most of the time, unfortunately, the error of anything is human error. And even with certain cases where it may not exactly be human error, like in the case of Challenger. That was weather affecting the O-rings, but it was still a human fault by the people at the O-ring manufacturing company out in, I believe it was Utah, saying that we don't want to launch, but due to constraints, they were unfortunately forced to say we're go for launch when they really weren't. That was a case, sorry, I think a group think. There was, there was some pressures saying, you know, I remember one official saying, when do you want me to launch next April and all this other stuff, and... Um, I think that that was a basic case of groupthink, and one of the statements that was made during that that telecom that you're mentioning, uh, offline with with the Morton Thiokol guys was, when somebody says you know take off your engineering hat and put on your management hat, we have to make a management decision here. That's when you get dumb, stupid stuff happening, and unfortunately, that's what happened that day. So. Right, which again just reiterates the factor that no matter what, no matter how safe you make something, there's always that chance and there's always that risk. And that's why human spaceflight is risky, but that's why astronauts, regardless, for the future of humans and exploration, there are people that will still strap in and launch. Yeah, but you know, you're, you're, I agree with you there, Sawyer. You're always going to have those folks that are going to go ahead and say, yeah, I'll do it. And they're going to step forward, and they're going to climb in that thing with a with a with a smile on their face. And I mean, shoot, if I got an offer to do it tomorrow, I would. So um, there's there's always going to be people that are going to step up to that challenge. You know, something that's part of safety is uh, the concern of 
like with Constellation, is this the best program, is this the best rocket, is this the best whole group of systems that we can put together for our astronauts? You know, at this point, it's almost scary to think of, of switching to a different launch system. And in uh, General Stafford's uh, testimony, he mentions about the Saturn One. Uh, they had its first test flight with a dummy upper stage in October of 61. And it carried a crew for the first time seven years later. You know, and that's with hardware that they did a, a launch. And then seven years later, had a launch, you know, a crewed launch. Here's another thing we're concerned about the International Space Station and supply and, and crew rotations. Uh, I found something else that I didn't know that was in his testimony. He talks about the uh, European Space Agency's ATV and Japan's HTV, and we've mentioned them on the show, mm-hmm. that um, the ESA recently uh, delivered their first payload approximately four years later than their initial target delivery date. And Japan delivered their HTV some two years later than their initial target date. Both government enter- entities, he said, used considerable resources to develop their individual transfer vehicles. I cert- he says, I certainly wish the two U.S. entities success in meeting their NASA milestones for cargo delivery since the ISS is dependent on it. But uh, none of this stuff comes fast. It's of a level that takes, you know, a government participation and, and design and planning. Yeah, it almost goes, um, you know, sort of hand-in-hand in, hand in, in trying to, you know, d- with, with any type of presidential directive. And unfortunately, we have presidents, you know, change office every four to eight years. And um, it's very, very tough to keep a, a program going when you have, you know, that change every, every so often. Uh, it's tough to keep that momentum going because each individual is going to want to go ahead and put their name on, on the program. So... You know, you're always going to have those those type of challenges as well, and you know we're not dealing with um, you know Legos here. We're dealing with some really complex pieces of equipment, and you're right. They need they require testing to make sure that every all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. You, Mark, you pointed out that that uh, the ATV and the the HTV had its had its growing growing pains, mm-hmm. and it led to delays. Well, we're we're dealing with a piloted system here. We're dealing with with putting a human in in this thing, so we want to make sure, darn sure, that we have all our eyes dotted and t's crossed before we we put human beings on this thing. So there's bound to be delays. Oh, no questions asked. We definitely want safety, and we want a system that works. And as I always like to say, if you take the time to do something, do it right. I know you're going to have people that are going to criticize NASA for. You know, making all the delays and not getting it on time and the large gap between human spaceflight. A couple of episodes ago, we were even arguing that. But when you actually take the time to stop and listen to what uh, Tom Stafford is saying and all these other people in terms of safety, sometimes it's better to slow down a little bit. So that way you reduce the risk of any issues and you get it working right the first time. Which is what you want. I mean, you know, the, you can have it fast or you can have it right. That's one of the things that, you know, that we, we sometimes use at work and sometimes you can't have both. You know, and um, and in this case, well, you, you, you definitely can't have both. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. All right, oh, <laughs> boys. Before We're we start hearing any more here. crickets all over the place, I think we should move along. This is, this, is getting to be like, this is getting to be like Mac Break Weekly. <laughs> this is getting to be insane, for lack of any other word to put it.
Yeah, it's going to be. T- <laughs> We're going to cause your editing like like some heavy duty problems here. Oh, that's all right. We're just having fun here. So don't (laughs) worry about any crickets that you may be hearing during the recording. It is not that your window is open or that you have an infestation in your house. No need to call an exterminator. Just hit the mute button. Okay. That said. That said, moving along. Let's check in on the Red Planet. We've got two stories to talk about with Mars. First is that one of NASA's rovers, Spirit, as you know, has been stuck on Mars in this one spot since April of 2009. They've been working on attempts to try and undig it from the surface of Mars and see if they can move it. Like we mentioned on past episodes, they were going to try and do it very slowly and carefully. To this point, they have completed 1.4 meters total of wheel spin, moving 5 tenths of a millimeter forward, 0.25 millimeters to the left, and 0.5 millimeters downward. Unfortunately, though, recently, during one of their attempts, the right wheel got stuck while trying to be freed from the soil there. And they're not sure whether it is actually the terrain that is located on, or if there is just a problem with the right rear wheel actuator. But until they figure that out, they have to put this on halt again. All I can say right now is poor spirit. Yeah, it looks like uh, plans to get her out of there are uh, dependent on uh, trying to find out if it was the uh, the right re- the right rear wheel actuator. And um, if for those of you, I'm, I'm looking at a uh, a uh, uh, an article here from uh, Base Daily, uh, dated uh, 3 December, basically talking about uh, another. The, the title of it is another stall. The right wheel ends the drive, and uh, again they they did allude to the fact that it looks like it may be the uh, the right wheel uh, actuator that may be down on Spirit, and if that's the case, they may have a very very hard time extracting Spirit from uh, from this little hole. Unfortunately, uh, you know I, I'm hoping for the best, but you know, if this is where, where she stays, this is where she stays. And, uh, you know, hats off to everybody that uh, was involved in the project. Uh, but I'm just hope, hoping, because this thing was only supposed to last, what, about 90 days? Correct. Yeah. So, and, and here it is. It, it touched down in, correct. somebody correct me, either January or February of 2003. You are correct. And we're, and we're talking about it here in November of 2009, still being semi-healthy. And... I, I I don't know. I guess there might be still some good science that uh, that spirit can still do, even though she's kind of stuck. So um, you know, we'll keep an eye on this. But uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping that indeed the, the the Martian gods or whatever there are out there smile upon her, and and we're able to go ahead and continue uh, continue uh, driving spirit around, and uh, hopefully learning some new stuff about the red planet. Unfortunately, Spirit is not the only thing that's giving NASA a couple of problems. Another one is the Mars Odyssey spacecraft, which is currently orbiting the planet. Unfortunately, on Saturday, November 28, 2009, it decided to take itself and go into safe mode. They have diagnosed that the problem was something with an internal memory, which is a known source, which they think may be an upset in the orbiter's memory error external bus. The reason they say that is because they experienced something similar in June of 2008. Since then, on 4 December, the spacecraft was once again functioning as normal. But, you know, again, uh, how long has has Mars Odyssey been there? 
with all due respect. So these these uh, little unmanned emissaries of ours are, are still doing some very good stuff, even though they are uh, they may be aging a bit and maybe getting a little bit cantankerous up there, but they are still doing some some beautiful science for us and they're outliving their actual life expectancies which uh, still amazes me to this day so you know john q taxpayer just let you just to let you know you're really getting your bang for the buck out of all these guys mars odyssey actually started orbiting around mars in 2001 and it's been a big help apparently in spirit and opportunity in phoenix so exactly so you know again it's it's you know, it's still doing some good stuff, and hopefully we'll continue doing some good stuff up there. And how many devices do any of us have, like a computer or anything that's that old that can at all function? Right here on Earth. <laughs> I know. Simple everyday devices that uh, that age don't work. That's a good point. Very that's good point. I actually just had to get rid of my computer, which was from 2001, because it stopped working. <laughs> I, I just had to put my, my, uh, my uh, old... Uh, G4 power book uh, to bed unfortunately it's it's shot and uh, I have to uh, to to give it a, a little bit of a burial there or, or give it over to the recycling because it's gone um, so yeah good point there there my friend very good point although you know NASA does it right how old's the shuttle true they're retiring yeah, yeah. after 29 years yeah, yeah you know you know the sad part about it is where we're going to be retiring those birds way before their time. Each one of those guys were, each one of those birds were designed for about 50 flights, if I'm not mistaken. Discovery is probably the one that's just going to near that level, but not, not even, not even close. But uh, um, yeah, it kind of makes you sad in a way. I mean, you know, Endeavor has been around just for how long? I mean, come on. Since after Challenger. Right. Since uh, I believe uh, what 1990. Are you sure, it wasn't just 90. No, nineteen nine. Well, I, I actually saw her under construction in nineteen nineties over in Palmdale. Oh, really? Uh, I think it was like more like nineteen ninety two. I'll have to look it up, but uh, um, somebody I'm sure is gonna gonna correct me on this one. But yeah, those those are that that's a fairly uh, young bird out of out of the whole uh, fleet there, and and we're gonna be retiring it way before it's time. Right, Space Shuttle Endeavor or OV one hundred five, as I like to call it as well, was flown in May of ninety two on mission STS-49. I was right, 1992. Huh? And I am a big fan of Endeavor as well, just because of everything that it's done for me. The fact that I carried one of my patches into space, and I intend to go see it in February, but that's besides the point. <laughs> Wave hello to it for us. I will be more than happy to. Please do. Yeah, because they started construction in 87 after uh, Challenger on it, so that one's really young, and yet... Also, Discovery, if I'm correct, was 84 in its first flight, and Atlantis was 85? Yes, it's correct. Yeah, again, that's still, you know, it's a while. It's a good 20-something years, but in those 20-something years, how many flights did it exactly take? That's, when you think of the number, it's nowhere near 50. But, uh, again, it's a testament to the technology that that these folks are building. Just so you know, also, I was looking it up, uh, Discovery will have the most with... 39 when it retires yeah and, and that's still within the ballpark but it's still again both all, all those birds were designed i believe for 50 flights so anything else in terms of i think we were talking about mars <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly i, but, I uh, would say uh all all nasa equipment on mars you know suck it up you got a long ways to go just you know, keep on plugging 
Exactly. <laughs> You're putting it very kindly. <laughs> there is one last news story, actually, that before we continue on. There's something going on in the near future called Meteor Watch. It's going to be going on from the 12th to the 14th of December 2009 across the world, but it's based actually in the United Kingdom. And what's going to happen is there is an extinct comet. Remnants of it is going to come on by and give us what's supposed to be, quote-unquote, the best meteor shower this year, and that is the Geminid meteor shower. And it's supposed to be larger than it has ever been in years past. And so there's going to be a whole entire thing going on of people on Twitter keeping an eye on it and reporting everything that they're seeing. So for information on that, you can follow on Twitter NewburyAS, N-E-W-B-U-R-Y-A-S, or you can also just search for anything with the hashtag MeteorWatch. Any comments on MeteorWatch before we do anything other than the fact that I myself will also be trying to take a look up at the sky, see if I can find anything and snap some pictures possibly? I think that probably makes the entire panel. I know I'm going to be going ahead and looking at this. I know I'll be looking up, but uh, I'm hoping it really will be that bright so I can actually see one of these right where I am for once. It's going to be the biggest and brightest, you know? (laughs) Yeah, because sometimes you miss it and you can't exactly see it. But in this case, uh, hopefully it's supposed to be brighter than usual, these Geminids, so... It's supposed to reach the max around the 13th and 14th of December. May put up over 100 meteors an hour under good viewing conditions. But remember, if you see anything or you're watching or you talk about it in the near future during that time period, be sure to use the hashtag MeteorWatch, M-E-T-E-O-R-W-A-T-C-H, so that way all of us can follow what you're doing. Exactly, and you know, keep an eye out too because um, there's always local astronomy groups and doing uh, uh, star parties about around then too. So um, check in in your uh, in your local newspapers or or whatever, and and see if uh, there are going to be any astronomy groups doing a star party at that period of time because it'll be neat to go ahead and watch this, but it'll also be kind of cool to watch it with folks that uh, can kind of tell you a little bit, give you a little bit further insight in it. So uh, take a take a look out there. Exactly. You don't need to be an expert astronomer to do it. Because trust nope. me, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> that makes two of us swear. <laughs> Anything else on that? I was waiting for it. <laughs> you knew it was coming. Oh, I knew. I knew. I was looking for it. Who knew the best tool to making a podcast would be uh, so crickets? All right. Now, I'd say we should stop with the news right there because while we have Craft Last with us, especially on our panel, we should definitely talk about something that she did that was really special. She actually wrote an entire song. It's called Bake Sale for NASA, and it is all about trying to save NASA and why we should keep basically supporting it. And I would be really interested to hear your thought process on how you came up with it, how you wrote it, etc. I think we all would be. Well, I was, uh, when I joined Twitter and I started following all the space tweets, everybody was talking about different ways to find funding, and somebody made an offhand joke about how we should hold a bake sale. So when I was watching the Augustine hearings, I, it, it, that idea just kept running through my head over and over and over. And so it kind of became a melding of what I was hearing in those hearings. <laughs> and this idea of, you know, trying to bring it together into something funny that any person could understand. You know, it's it's easy to spew facts at people, but that doesn't stick into their heads so much. So I thought this idea of a bake sale would 
bring it all home to something everyone can relate to. I would definitely say so, because it even takes it and throws a little humor in it, such as in the chorus, uh, where it says, uh, the cookies are sure to be out of this world. We can even have Astros as clerks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you have to have something that really catches people and, you know, okay, so it's a bad pun, but <laughs> who doesn't love a bad pun? <laughs> I guess you've written some other songs. This is not your first, I'm I'm sure. No, no. This is um, actually about my 33rd song, 34th, some, oh. somewhere in there. But it's the first to actively be released. I'm working on an album that um, hopefully will come out in early to mid-2010. And um, this is remaining a standalone single um, because it's supporting the Space Tweep Society. And so I'm donating a portion of all profits to help maintain the Space Tweep Society as sort of a thank you for giving me the idea. (laughs) Oh, really? Is that where the inspiration for this all came from there? Or or was it another source? Or is it just coming from, from inside? It was pretty much from reading people's tweets um, and also reading things on NASA.gov and just listening to anybody who knew what they were talking about. <laughs> um, it was, you know, there, I, originally the song, it's already a long song at five and a half minutes. That's very long, but um, it could have easily been 15 or 20. <laughs> we don't need another <laughs> Inagata DeVita, though. No, no. No. Or, or, or another Pink Floyd type song. That's that's for darn sure. Um, right, because I, I it's to... not as it was in the 60s and 70s when that was made. People don't listen to music the same way, and I'll leave it at that. It's a little long, but there was so much information to put in that I think people really needed to hear. And how did you narrow it down exactly to the points that you made, such as in referencing to Kennedy's speech and the amount of money that's actually put in towards the program. Like, how did you select that out of all the other information? I really wanted to stick with things that would hit people who don't know anything about NASA. There are so many people with misconceptions, and I wanted to strike straight at their concerns and fears. Like, the part about feeding people. Um, So many people do say, "We, we give too much money to NASA if we just cut NASA's budget entirely, we could feed the world, when that's patently not true. And in fact, NASA is helping us feed the world by helping farmers with influencing climate changes and finding differences in soil and finding out um, where there's diseased crops because they generate extra heat. So we actually do have more food on Earth because of satellites in space that are NASA controlled and doing research for NASA. So I think there's just a lot of misconceptions. I wanted to try and just go to the heart of those. You've got some great thoughts in there. How was the uh, recording process? Was that was that as much fun as it looks like writing the song probably was? It was. Um, it was a really good recording experience. I used a guy who, uh, right in my town, Hoboken, New Jersey, who, uh, his name's Dave Entwistle, and he's incredibly talented, and he was so easy to work with. He loved the concept of the song, and I think he really brought out the best in it. That's something a good engineer can do, really work with you and, and tune into what you're trying to do, and it, it kind of uh, lends a, a special touch to what the artist is doing when, when you have that kind of rapport. 
It really does. A lot of people don't realize even when you're completely solo, you have to collaborate. You have to have feedback. It can't be a one-person show entirely if it's going to be effective because everybody has a little something to add. What other individuals sort of gave you a hand with, with, with the song? Um, I know one who, who did the cover art, but uh, um, what other, other people that you'd like to go ahead and just sort of recognize that had given you some, uh, some feedback and some help with this? Well, of course, there's you. Right, <laughs> uh, there's Jean, um, who heard a preview of it. But, I mean, mostly it was Jen here, Flying Jenny, who really helped me with the song. She did the cover. She did such a great job. I didn't even have to give her any suggestions. She just took the idea, came up with the perfect art, and executed it flawlessly. I, I've never had just such an easy experience working with someone and uh, especially someone I had never met before <laughs> in person. So it was an incredible experience also of what Twitter can bring and how it brings us all together and uh, makes it easy to work together. Um, I don't think there's been too many mediums that successful at that. I'll agree with you on that one. And I think, I, I, I always feel really bad. I can't remember who said the original bake sale thing, but I think it might have been Absolute Space Girl. <laughs> Sounds like something she might say. Yeah, it sounds like something she would say. <laughs> it, was, it was right when I first joined Twitter, and I think I was only following 100 people, and she was one of the first. So um, I, I, I might need to go back and look through like the Twitter stream for early August. <laughs> All right, now I've got a question based on one part of it in the song where you talk about... Uh, I could go on for days extolling the ways investment in NASA makes sense. Um, but I have only the song to convince those who are wrong and think it's a wasteful expense. How do you think the song is actually going to convince people? Like, how do you feel that this is really going to spread the word? Because I feel that way as well. What do you think about it? Well, I've had a really good experience with that. When I've played it live in a room full of people who know almost nothing about NASA funding... Um, they're very surprised. They're, they're very surprised. A lot of people really think that NASA's budget is enormous. They think it's like 20% of the federal budget or 10% of the federal budget. And so when they hear what it really is, they're shocked. They also, it, it, it has this wonderful effect where it seems to bring out the little kid in people. Um, every time I sing it, people come up to me telling me stories about where they were the first time they saw a shuttle launch or um, for people who were around at the time where, you know, what TV it was that they saw the moon landing on and how much it inspired them, especially as children. And it brings back some of that childlike delight that I think most kids share for the space program when they're, you know, say under the age of 10 or 12. Where do you think that childlike delight goes by the time you hit 20? Why do you think it's, it fades away? That's a big question, but I think for me, as somebody who wanted to be a scientist and fell completely away from it, it was science education in school. It was really bad science teachers. And um, I, I feel this way because I did have one teacher who was a physics teacher, and he wasn't even my teacher, but he got me really inspired, and I think he's the reason I still am interested in physics. But all my other teachers, they, they took all the fun out of it. They, they made it seem, I don't know, boring. 
And especially to a jaded teenager, you know, teenagers think everything's boring <laughs> for the most part. So it's hard to maintain that motivation all through those years. Yeah, that, that's a great lead into what I think is my favorite set of lyrics in this song. And I'll, I'll quote it directly here. In these days where folks are trying, uh, trying to take the real science out of schools, we need to step up our efforts to become a nation of fools. Uh, and then you you just sort of hit it hit hit it on the head, and I think NASA's a good you know catalyst to trying to to increase our uh, you know the education and and uh, and science awareness not only just in schools but uh, in uh, you know the populace as well. And uh, you're absolutely right. We don't go ahead and popularize not just space science but all science in general. We are going to be way behind and i think nasa's charge is to go ahead and help with that to popularize science and i'm hoping that uh hoping that that set of lyrics does not fall on deaf ears that's for sure well that's that's certainly the hope (laughs) has the song had any impact on you know non-science folks have somebody you know walked up to you and said hey you know because of this i i watched a shuttle launch or i'm paying a little bit more attention to to flights or anything like that Absolutely. In fact, I had three people come up to me and say they watched Aries 1X because I told them about it. They got up early in the morning, earlier than they had to, and they, they, I gave them all websites. Uh, I'd seen the, they'd seen me play the song the night before. And so I gave them all websites where they could watch the launch. And they actually did. I was very surprised because none of them were people who... They, none of them had seen a launch since the 80s, not one, and they watched Aries. <laughs> wow, you're kidding. No, and somebody actually asked me about how FTS-129 was going last week, <laughs> or two weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's... Yeah, and in fact, one of one of the people who uh, who encouraged me to play the song in the first place just told me he's joining the Space Troop Society. <laughs> yeah, um, and he said, you know, he hadn't... He's always been interested in space, but he just just like I felt before I found Twitter, he you know didn't know how to find out about news. I mean, the media hasn't covered you know they've covered as little as they could of NASA for what twenty years now. So I think there's a lot more people out there who are passionate about space, but kind of forgot. And do you think is that that the reason the reason why they've forgotten is it because the media has sort of portrayed this as like ho hum here we go again or is it something else? I think that's a lot of it. I think a lot of people just other than pretty much Hubble. Hubble seems to be the one thing that gets a lot of attention because it sends back such pretty pictures and people like pretty pictures. <laughs> but I think. For the most part, I mean, I haven't seen much in the way of mainstream news coverage that makes you, you know, want to look further into it. I, I think it's wonderful now that we have channels like Discovery that do actually make this stuff a little more accessible. But I love I love space and I love NASA, and I didn't know for the first few years NASA.gov was in existence that it was even there. I have a feeling most people yeah. also don't realize how many different things come from space technology, like you continually mention of things that come out of it also. And do you think maybe people will actually stop and think, because when you talk about how it affects us on Earth, do you think maybe people will think what really does come from NASA and you know, possibly look up and realize all the silly little things like cordless power tools that come from the space program? That's what 
am hoping, and I put on my website, actually, under the big sale for NASA section, I put links to um, NASA.gov, NASA spinoffs, Wayne Hale's blog, um, and a few other sources to find out this information to try and make it easy for people who like the song to find it and find out more. You know, I hope the song is only the beginning. I hope it's a spark to make them want to learn more. And I'm also planning on traveling... Um, I'm hoping to go on the road in 2010, and I'm bringing a copy of NASA spinoffs with me, and I've just received a bunch of cards that are all about NASA technology, um, hologram cards where if you flip them one way, it shows the world without NASA technology, and you flip it the other way, and it shows it with all this NASA technology. And they're really cool and accessible, and I'm going to take those on the road with me so if people want to know more, they can just take a look at all these things, and then I can point them to where to learn even more from there. Outstanding. And you wanted you wanted new out, we, you know, the other day we were talking about uh, new outreach possibilities. I mean, you've invented one that could be wildly successful, and um, you know, I really hope that, that folks go ahead, download the song, listen to it, and take it to heart, because it... Uh, you say a lot of good stuff in there, and um, really, I hope hope this inspires people to want to go ahead and learn further. Well, thank you. That's a huge compliment because, you know, you write a song or you write anything, and you hope it reaches people and touches people, and then, but you never know until it's out there. And in the week or so that this song's been out, I cannot believe the reception it's gotten from, you know people who are fans of space and people who know nothing alike it's it's so gratifying yeah it's a catchy tune actually and there are some people that when they listen to music they think you know oh it's great and eventually they'll they like a song that much they'll learn the lyrics to it and sing it and if people really enjoy the tune like i do for this one you think you actually start to learn the lyrics it's amazing what you can get out of them so uh, thank you for writing it so well and playing it so well oh well thank you (laughs) and you're welcome and again, you're not preaching to the choir here. You know, that's what I really, really like. This, you're, you're getting a whole new audience with this. You're getting people that wouldn't care one fig about, about NASA or about technology or about how, how the space program is helping them. And yet, you know, you've thrown this out there and you're attracting a whole new audience and a whole, hopefully a whole new bunch of folks that are going to ask questions and say, you know, maybe I ought to look into this. So really, congratulations, and a beautiful way of doing it. Well, thank you. And, you know, I really hope it works. I mean, I'm a big fan of grassroots activism. It's all about reaching one person at a time and educating them, and then hopefully they'll go and they'll tell everyone they know. And each person they tell, you know, and, and it'll increase exponentially. So just being able to hit the people who have actually contacted me, I know the information's making it a lot further. Now, if people want to download this song, where can they get it from? Right now, they can get it from Amazon MP3, Rhapsody, Napster, and Lala.com. And it's coming to iTunes uh, worldwide. Uh, I put it in every country they have a store in. Oh, it's also on Shockhound right now. And there's a complete list at, that I keep updated at my site, which is craftlast.com. Great, and that's 99 cents? 
It's 99 cents at Amazon. I think there's somewhere that it's 89 cents right now. Regardless, it's worth every penny of it. It's a great song, and you can also stay tuned for the ending. The fade-out music will not be the opening, but we will play a brief clip of the actual song itself so you can get an idea of it. Once again, Craftflask, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you so much for actually writing this song and doing the initiative and coming on to talk about it. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Anything I can do to make this song reach more people, I am more than happy to do. We are more than happy to have you on as well, and I must say I'm really inspired by what you wrote and the way you did it, so thank you again. And I'd say with that, we are finished here. So again, thank you to everybody, Craftlast especially, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. We definitely want to have you here again. Well, anytime, anytime. And Gene, thank you again, as always, for joining us. Uh, thank you again, Sawyer. This, is, uh, this has been a blast. Mark, uh, once again, as always, thank you so much for joining us and your input. Glad to be here. Thanks for everybody's uh, input as well. Indeed. Thank you for all of you out there listening. Remember, if you want to get in contact with us, we have our Twitter account, which is at TalkingSpace. If you mention us with an at and TalkingSpace with a question or anything like that, we would be more than happy to answer it for you. So with that, I will say thank you for listening and making this a success. We hope you also download the song, which is called Bake Sale for NASA. It is available, as Craftlast just mentioned, on all of those different websites. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. We sent men to the moon because of some lines in a speech that inspires to this day. We learn more about Earth from orbit than we can in any other way. Yet we spend and we spend and we spend and we spend on corporate welfare that will never end. Programs that waste more than they create. Yet we're happy to let NASA deflate. So let's hold a bake sale for NASA. Show our love for a program that actually works. The cookies are sure to be out of this world. We could even have Astros as clerks. Give folks a chance to learn firsthand why we need these adventures in space. How it affects them directly.